Good morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 5. We continue this morning in our study of the gospel of Luke and uh, today we are going to try to wrap up chapter 5 by looking at verses 33 uh, through 39. And so uh, let me start by just reading the text and I'll try to explain what it means and how we can apply this passage to our lives So Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, Uh, this is God's holy and inerrant word, and specifically this passage is the word that God has for you this morning. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer, offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Father, we confess that we often take your word for granted. Help us, Lord, to see your word for what it is, uh, the spiritual food that we need, that our souls might live. We pray that the Holy Spirit would work through the preached word in this hour, that we might understand this passage and that we might apply this passage. That as a result of being in your word this morning, each and every one of your children would leave this room with hearts full of conviction, hearts full of joy, hearts full of love. We pray also for those in this room who do not know you. We pray that you would show to them the folly of trusting in their own righteousness, that they might trust fully in Christ alone. We ask all this in his name, for your glory. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 5, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that we are in a section of this gospel in which uh, the opposition to Jesus, right, the conflict, uh, has been slowly building up. And the primary antagonists are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Uh, They were a sect within Judaism uh, that stressed adherence to rules and regulations and commandments, uh, many of which they themselves made up and added to the law of Moses. Uh, And so picture this group. Uh, They are characterized by a works righteousness Uh, They think by observing all of these rules, they can work their way to God and earn their righteousness before God. And so two weeks ago, we looked at that story in which Jesus heals the paralytic who uh, comes in through the hole in the roof that his friends made. Jesus says to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And that causes the Pharisees to recoil and, and accuse him of blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Like, how dare he claim for himself a prerogative that belongs only to God? What they couldn't see, what they refused to see, was that Jesus is God. 
And so he has the authority and the right and the power to forgive sin. And Jesus demonstrates that that is so by making the paralytic walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And so the Pharisees are they're stunned, they're embarrassed, and we, the reader, begin to sense this tension. Well, then last week we looked at the call of Levi, the tax collector. I mean, this guy might have been the most hated dude in the city of Capernaum. Uh, Tax collectors were viewed as criminals, traitors, unclean, right? You name it. But Jesus calls him. And Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. And then Levi throws this great feast. And he invites all the tax collectors and all the sinners in the neighborhood. And Jesus even reclines at table with them. He fellowships with the very kind of people that the Pharisees would never go near. This makes them furious. Look at verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're not asking that question out of curiosity. It's a loaded question. What kind of teacher is this? What kind of teacher is he that he would be a friend of sinners? We, we righteous Pharisees, we would never go near people like that. What's wrong with him? And you'll remember Jesus' brilliant response. Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Like if these people, if they're really spiritually sick, like you say they are, then why wouldn't I, the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins, and you saw that with your own eyes, why wouldn't I be with them? The sick need a doctor, and these sinners these people who know that they're not righteous, these people who know that they can't work their way to heaven, well, they need me. Let's take a quick look ahead. We're not going to get into any details right now, but I just want you to kind of see what's coming up here. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Jesus' disciples are picking and eating grain on the Sabbath, and look at verse 2. It's those Pharisees again. And this time they accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. And then the next narrative, that's in verses 6 through 11, scribes and Pharisees back at it again. They're watching him closely, seeing if Jesus would, I don't know, slip by healing someone on the Sabbath. And when he does, well, they're furious again. And that story ends with this kind of ominous remark in verse 11. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So hopefully you see that our story this morning is kind of right smack in the middle of four narratives that Luke presents, uh, two before and two after, in which Jesus and the Pharisees are in conflict. Because what Jesus is saying, and what Jesus is doing, well, it goes against the Pharisees' traditions, and their practices, and their expectations. So no surprise, right? That's basically what our passage this morning is about. And so we'll start with the statement that kind of opens the narrative. Look at verse 33. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours 
eat and drink. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity as to, like, who is saying this. Uh, The most natural way to read they in verse 33 is to refer back to the Pharisees uh, who asked the previous question in verse 30. But in Matthew's account of this same episode, uh, Matthew explicitly includes the disciples of John the Baptist in the group asking the question. And so it's probably best for us to think of this question uh, as being posed by like a whole bunch of people, including the Pharisees and including even John's disciples. Now, we don't know the motives of the disciples of John in asking this question. Like, were they fasting because their leader, John, was in prison? Or were they just fasting as a kind of sign of their repentance, right? We know John preached repentance, and he led a pretty austere life to reflect that. Were the disciples of John disillusioned because Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, or are they just genuinely curious? Why why the difference? It's kind of hard to say. But with the Pharisees, with the Pharisees, we can be pretty sure— Again, think about the placement of this story in the midst of four other stories in which they're attacking Jesus. We can be pretty sure why they are asking this question. This statement or this question, at least in their hearts, it's not like a random observation. It's not an innocent and sincere inquiry. This is an attack. Notice the phraseology. Your disciples eat and drink. Does that phrase sound familiar? It should, because it brings us back to last week's story. Look at verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so eat and drink, in the Pharisees' eyes at least, that's not a good thing. It's an accusation. It's an attack. It's basically the same question they were asking last week. Why do you eat and drink? Last week it was, why do you eat and drink with with low lives like them? And this week it's, why do you eat and drink instead of fasting and praying like us? So again, they are angry. And so my sermon title this week is The Fast and the Furious. There you go. Now, I want you to notice that as a part of his response— And Jesus is going to respond to these accusations. As a part of his response, Jesus doesn't address the prayers part at all. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. But Jesus says nothing about them praying. And I think the reason is obvious. It's because they prayed. They didn't fast, but they did pray a lot. And we spent a whole sermon on that topic just a few weeks ago, and so I'm not going to get into it all again, but... You'll remember he would withdraw to desolate places and pray, right? His life, his ministry was characterized by prayer. Presumably his disciples would do the same. And so Jesus doesn't even address that. But fasting, well, Jesus and his disciples did not fast. And that was a big problem for the Pharisees. You see, fasting was a big part of religious life for the Pharisees. But something interesting, uh, did you know this? Uh, There is only one fast that is commanded in the entire Old Testament. And that's the fast on the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur. 
providentially. Yom Kippur is coming up next week. Uh, it is next Wednesday, and that's really a bummer that it falls on a Wednesday because it does nothing to help me with canceling alternate side parking, but that's another story entirely. Uh, but besides that one day a year, that, that one fast a year, there are no other commanded fasts, commanded regular fasts in the Old Testament. And we do see a lot of examples of fasting in the Old Testament. You got David, you got Daniel, you got Nehemiah, you got the entire nation at times, right? In which people would consecrate special times for fasting. And typically it's done in connection with mourning over sin or some kind of grief or sorrow combined with prayer or bringing whatever burden or mourning or grief or request uh, for deliverance to God. But in terms of like a regular commanded fast, there was only one a year. But the Pharisees, remember what we said about how they would add things to the law of God, thinking that by keeping all of these rules and regulations, they could make themselves right with God. They could earn their way to heaven. Well, this is a great example of that. They commanded fasting twice a week, every Monday, every Thursday. The Bible says nothing about that, but these are laws that they added. You might be familiar with the story from Luke chapter 18. There's a Pharisee that goes up to the temple to pray. And you'll remember one of the things that he boasts in is that he keeps that rule. I fast twice a week. He's talking about the Monday-Thursday fast. And so they take something that's supposed to be like this voluntary seeking of God on occasions of penitence or sorrow or mourning, and they make it into a command and a ritual. Not only did they make it into a command and ritual, but they also made it into a big spectacle, a big show. And so you'll remember Jesus rebukes them for that in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, referring to the Pharisees, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You see the Pharisees? Like their entire system of religion, it was all about being justified in their own eyes and in the eyes of men. I think John twelve forty three is a great summary statement. Uh, they loved the Pharisees. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And so whether that's expressing itself in their prayers, right? They would have these long kind of ritual prayers that they would pray at set times of the day uh, on the street corners for everybody to see and hear. Or was their giving, right? Publicly tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin. Or was their fasting? And look at us. Twice a week we fast. Their religion was completely wrapped up in these external self-justifying rituals. So fasting to the Pharisees wasn't really about drawing near to God in mourning or repentance or seeking his deliverance. It was a public badge of righteousness, right? Look at how holy I am. And at the same time, it was also a test of righteousness for others. Why aren't you holy like I am? And so the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples eating and drinking, not fasting like us. Which means that Jesus and his disciples, well, they fail the Pharisees' test 
of righteousness. Why are you not holy like we are? And so with that set up in mind, we spend the rest of our time considering Jesus' response. Verses 34 to 39. And there's basically three parts to his response as to why they're not fasting. And so we'll consider them one at a time. Uh, First, Jesus addresses the impropriety. It's simply not proper that they fast. That's in verse 34. Uh, Then Jesus addresses the incompatibility. That his gospel was incompatible with the Pharisees and their self-righteous works religion. And he does that by giving two illustrations from everyday life in verses 35 to 38. And then finally, Jesus pronounces an indictment on the Pharisees. He rebukes them for their stubbornness, and that's in verse 39. So the impropriety, the incompatibility, and the indictment. Let's consider them one at a time. Why aren't you all fasting? Well, first, Jesus says, consider the impropriety. My disciples don't fast simply because that would not be proper. It's not that fasting is bad. It's not that fasting is wrong. Obviously, Jesus himself fasted for 40 days and 40 nights during his temptation, right? Luke chapter 4, verse 2. And so obviously, Jesus is not like anti-fasting. It's just that fasting for Jesus' disciples in this season was improper, And Jesus makes this point by giving them a word picture that they would understand right away, which is that of a wedding. I want you to think back to the last wedding that you were at. Ceremony's done. The vows have been read. It's it's all official now. And so you're in the reception hall and the the bride and the groom, they make their uh, grand entrance and everybody cheers. And it's it's just a great time of rejoicing and celebration And you make your way to your table, you sit down, and the groom gets up, the bride is by his side, and he announces, thank you all for coming, we're so glad that you're here to spend this joyful day with us. Not sure you've heard, but we are declaring a fast today. There will be absolutely no eating and no drinking at all. Well, I think you'd agree that that would be ridiculous. That would be unfitting. It would be improper. You just don't fast at a wedding. It's not that fasting is bad. It's just that fasting is not appropriate for a wedding. A feasting, celebration, rejoicing, that's fitting for the celebration of a wedding. Like it says in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, and a wedding is no time to weep and mourn and fast. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And so Jesus is saying that as far as like redemptive history goes, this right now, it's wedding time. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? The long-awaited Messiah is finally here. And so this is a time of rejoicing and gladness. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. And so it's simply not fitting that the disciples should fast right now. That they've been called from darkness into marvelous light. They've experienced the joy of having their sins forgiven. They're rejoicing that their names are written in the book of heaven. This is a wedding right now. It's not proper for them to fast. Point number one, the impropriety. 
That's kind of a side point, but also very importantly, I think Jesus is making another really significant point here. Because notice what he calls himself. The bridegroom. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's a reference that I think the Pharisees would have picked up on pretty quickly because they knew their Old Testaments. And throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as the bridegroom. Israel is his bride. For example, Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so you see the significance, right? Jesus is ascribing that title to himself, declaring that he is God. I am that bridegroom. And his point is that it makes no sense for the disciples to be fasting when he, the bridegroom, is still with them. But, and if you've been keeping track, this is the first time in this gospel that Jesus has explicitly spoken of his own death. The bridegroom is not always going to be with them. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Taken away. The bridegroom is taken away. That's referring to his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion and his death. And perhaps we see allusions and and shades of uh, Isaiah 53 here, referring to the suffering servant. What's going to happen to the suffering servant? Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so when he would be taken away, then perhaps it would be proper and appropriate for his disciples to fast in sorrow, in mourning, in grief. Not because they have to, twice a week, to earn righteousness or even be seen in the eyes of men, but because they would genuinely be afflicted in their souls. But even then, that sorrow and that mourning, well, that would be temporary. Even as Jesus told his disciples, John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy, referring, of course, to his resurrection. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. For now, Jesus is with his disciples. It is wedding time. It is a joyous celebration in the scheme of redemptive history. Messiah is here. And so point number one, they're not fasting because there is a certain impropriety to their fasting right now. Which brings us to point number two. Again, in response to the question of why his disciples don't fast like the Pharisees, Jesus says, my disciples don't fast like you all do Because there's an incompatibility between what you're doing and what I'm doing. So point number two, let's consider the incompatibility. Jesus is like the master illustrator, right? Using pictures to make his point. And this time we get a a two-for-one deal here. First in verse 36, we have an illustration from clothing, Back then, right, clothing was made by hand, and 
generally people had a lot less than we do. They had a, a pretty limited wardrobe. And so you pretty much wore the same clothes over and over and over. And uh, when your clothes that were handmade, uh, cotton wool, uh, when they got a hole in them, you wouldn't throw it out. You would patch it up. And so it wouldn't be unusual to see people wearing garments that were all patched up. But no one, and this is the first of three things that Jesus says no one would do. Like, these are just absurd illustrations. No one, when they get a hole in their garment, is going to take a brand new garment and tear it apart, tear a piece from it, and then patch it onto the old. That would be ridiculous. Because now your new garment is ruined, right? You just ripped it up. And your old garment looks terrible because you've got a faded old garment with a brand new patch that doesn't match at all. Old and new garments are incompatible. You can't just mix and match the two or you're going to ruin both. And then a second illustration, verse 37, this time is with wine and wineskins. A wineskin is basically like an animal skin that was used to hold wine or other liquids. But an old wineskin, one that was uh, used once and then dried out, well, it would get brittle, and if you put new wine into it, the, the new wine would ferment, and the expansion from the gases would make the wineskin swell. But because the old wineskin is brittle, it would burst. And so now you've got a broken old wineskin, and all of your new wine has spilled. Both old and new are once again ruined. Again, Jesus' point is that nobody would do that because they're incompatible. No, if you've got new wine, verse 38, you're going to put it into a new wineskin. So garments and wine, both illustrations are making the same point of incompatibility. You can't just take new and patch it into or, or pour it into something that is old. Well, in the same way, and that's the point that he's making here, Jesus, his gospel, the kingdom of God that he's been preaching, it is simply not compatible with the Pharisees and their old ways of legalism and tradition and man-made rules. You can't just kind of like squeeze Jesus and his gospel into the pre-existing structures of Pharisaical Judaism. That's true of their uh, legalistic and ritualized fasting. And it's more generally true of their entire system of religion. You see, Jesus didn't come to just kind of reform the Pharisaical Judaism of the day. Just kind of add a few things here and there and uh, kind of, you know, improve what you've already got going on. No, it's completely different. Seven times, you can count them, seven times in his answer to the Pharisees, Jesus uses the word new. Because what he is preaching is nothing like the Pharisees and their religion. Point number two, the incompatibility. Brothers and sisters, this is, I think, crucial for our understanding of why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much and why Jesus so adamantly opposes the Pharisees. It's not just that they had slightly differing perspectives on some of the finer points of religion. It's that they had two entirely different gospels that were completely antithetical to one another. You see, the gospel of the Pharisees, 
which, just to be clear, is not Old Testament religion, right? It is not uh, the Old Testament, but it is all of the things that they added to the Old Testament. It was all about trying to achieve your own righteousness through your works, right? Through keeping the commandments and ceremonies and rituals. If I just do these things, then I'll be right with God. It's a gospel that maybe is most clearly summarized in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we referred to earlier Luke chapter 18, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went, into the, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now listen to what the Pharisee says, and you can hear the gospel of the Pharisees in his words. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so the Pharisee points to the things that he does. This is what I do as the basis of his righteousness. I fast, I tithe, I don't live like other people. Therefore, I am right with God. The gospel of the Pharisees is a gospel of works righteousness. But then you've got the gospel of Jesus. And it's the exact opposite. Because the gospel of Jesus is one that calls sinners to repentance. One that requires us to realize that we cannot work our way to God. That we cannot achieve our own righteousness. That we cannot justify ourselves. That we could never be good enough on our own for heaven. That no amount of fasting or works or giving or doing could ever make us right with God. Instead, the gospel of Jesus requires us to come completely empty-handed, in humility, in repentance, and cry out for his grace to save us. And it's a gospel that we see on the lips of the other man in that parable, the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he could plead, for God's mercy upon him. And that is every Christian's only plea. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's only by God's loving and kind mercy shown to undeserving sinners like us that we can be saved. And so you see how these two gospels are completely incompatible. New garments, old garments. New wine, old wineskins. Completely incompatible. Because how can you mesh? Uh, You can be right with God by doing this and doing that with you are a wretched sinner. You can't do anything to save yourself. You need God's mercy completely incompatible, cannot be mixed. It's either your works that save you, the gospel of the Pharisees, or it's God's mercy and grace in Jesus that saves you. That's the gospel of Jesus. It cannot be both. We can't try to combine them. Like, I'm going to try my best to earn my own salvation. Maybe I can get like nine-tenths of the way there, and then, oh, Jesus can kind of carry me over the finish line. No. First of all, you can't get anywhere close to the finish line in your own righteousness. But even more importantly, by trying to earn your own righteousness, you're essentially rejecting Jesus. 
I don't need your grace. And his grace is just like an extra. It's just like kind of fire insurance in case you can't actually achieve it yourself. But that can't be, right? From beginning to end, it's all got to be of God's grace. And let me say this. This isn't true just of Pharisaical Judaism. This is true of any other religion besides biblical Christianity. Because every other religion is, in essence, a religion of works. This is what you have to do in order to please God and be right with him. Only biblical Christianity holds out the truth that, no, there is nothing that you can do to be righteous. You must trust in the righteousness of another. You must simply believe that Jesus died to take away your sins and make you righteous. And so, friends, if your idea of salvation is anything other than the gospel, even if it's adding the gospel onto something else, even if it's mostly the gospel and then just a little bit of work salvation mixed in, that's a recipe for disaster. You do that with clothes, you're going to end up with a horribly mismatched garment. You do that with wine, you're going to end up with a big, messy spill you do that with the gospel, you end up in hell. Right? You can't patch grace onto works righteousness. You can't pour grace into the old wineskin of works righteousness. This is how Paul put it in Romans 11. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, you know what you're saying? Grace is no longer grace. Now, in light of that contrast... The gospel of the Pharisees and the gospel of Jesus? Well, I think we get a little bit more insight into last week's story. Because according to the gospel of the Pharisees, tax collectors like Levi, they were just a lost cause. They can never be righteous enough. They're so wicked. And that's why the Pharisees are so befuddled and angry. Why, Jesus, are you hanging out with the unredeemable? But according to the gospel of Jesus... Tax collectors like Levi? Sinners who were called to repentance? Well, that's exactly whom he came to save. Unlike the Pharisees who trusted in their own righteousness, well, these repentant tax collectors and sinners, they knew their need for a savior. They were starving for grace. And so why wouldn't Jesus hang out with them? So you see, point number two, the incompatibility. Well, that brings us now to point number three, the indictment. Uh, Jesus is going to stay with this wine imagery, but here he kind of pivots to bring an indictment against the Pharisees and the stubbornness of their hearts. Verse 39, And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, The old is good. That would have been a proverbial saying from that day. Basically, it's referring to the fact that we tend to be creatures of habit. We like to do things the way they've always been done. And listen, verse 39 is me. Right? Like, I know what I like, and I like what I know. Right? I go to, to Sogat pretty often. That's the Indian restaurant on Amsterdam, and there's a free plug for them. It's pretty good Indian food. I really like it. 
But here's the thing. When I go to Swagat, and I go there pretty often, when I go to Swagat, I always, with no exceptions, under any circumstances, I always order the butter chicken. They got a pretty expansive menu. You want to try the vindaloo today? No, I'm good with the butter chicken. After eating the good old butter chicken, I don't desire new because I say the old is good. And this is true of all of us to some degree, even those of you who are more adventurous at restaurants. I'm guessing that most of you are sitting in the pew that you're sitting in this morning because that's where you usually sit we are all, to some degree, creatures of habit. We're stubborn. We, we like things the way they are. Now, that's fine for Indian food. And that's fine for where you sit on Sundays. And remember Jesus' original illustration? That's fine for wine. Like, if you're good with the old butter chicken and you like your pew and you're good with the old wine, well, in that case, your, your stubbornness and your liking things the way they are, it's not really hurting you. But in the context of everything that Jesus has just said about the incompatibility of the old Pharisaical Judaism and the new Jesus and the kingdom of God, when it comes to the gospel, stubbornness is not fine. Because it's this stubborn mindset, one that simply refuses to let go of their old ways, that's going to lead the Pharisees to continually reject Jesus in spite of all of the evidence. And it's this stubborn mindset that is eventually going to lead the Pharisees' anger to rise to the point where they have to kill him. And it's this stubborn mindset that's going to eventually lead to their eternal destruction. This is tragic. They're so entrenched in their old system, in their old traditions, in their old rules and rituals that they had no desire for what Jesus was bringing to the table. So they're going to clutch on to their old ways, proclaiming the whole way down to the road of destruction. The old is good. Point number three, the indictment. Friend, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've heard the gospel that you're a sinner in need of salvation, that salvation comes by repenting and turning to Christ, believing that he died and rose again to pay for your sin. But you're thinking to yourself, the old is good. Now what you're trusting in that makes you think that you're good, that's going to vary from person to person. Maybe you're like the Pharisees and you're trusting in your religious rituals and ceremonies and your works, you say the old is good. Maybe you're like a lot of a modern American society, and you're just trusting in the fact that you're a moral and upright person. And the old is good. Maybe you're like a lot of what falls into the category of evangelical Christianity, and you're trusting in either your baptism or a prayer that you once prayed, and you say, the old is good. Whatever it is that would keep you from crying out to Jesus today, a friend, you may think it's good, 
But the Bible is clear and Jesus is clear that it's not. You need to forsake and abandon anything that you're trusting in for eternal salvation and look to Christ alone. You're like Levi in last week's story and leaving everything he followed Jesus. Leave the old behind. Look to his death on the cross for sinners like you. Trust that his righteousness is your only hope and so be saved. And believers... As we fight this constant battle against slipping back into patterns of works righteousness, like we know we're saved by grace, but we just want to add a little bit of works. Tempted to shift our trust from Christ alone to Christ, and I'm a pretty good Christian myself. Well, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you as well. Search out those remnants of works righteousness. Repent. And look to Christ, and Christ alone. Father, we praise you for the gospel of your Son. Father, we confess that in and of ourselves, we are a works-oriented people. We want to achieve our own salvation. But Father, we thank you that you have opened up our eyes to the truth that that is impossible, that we need the miracle of regeneration to be born again, that you might make us into new creations, entirely new creations. And so, Father, we pray for those in this room who do not yet believe that. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation in which they would rest from trying to achieve their own salvation and rest in the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.